Harvest Community Church. Whether you're right here in the room or in one of our three other campuses or in your home in the age of COVID, uh, welcome. And it's time for the Word of God, but first, I want to answer a question. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, by the way, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, second, uh, that wasn't a question, was it? No. But this question I have been getting from a few people is that when you heard that we were able to distribute food for a month to 70 families in India, because in India, when they all stop things, things are tougher than they are in America. Um, some of you were so excited that we did that, you, you, I, I had several people say, how can I help more Indians? And I appreciate that because it's a generous impulse, it's a Christian impulse, it's a good human impulse to want to feed hungry people and help people in need. Um, one other thing we were able to do, this is part of the answer, through our children. Um, <laughs> we had, what was it, what do you call that, a penny parade or something like that? What, did, what was that? Is that what you called it? Penny drive. And, and apparently some of the kids brought more than a penny because we were able to send thousands of dollars to another Indian we work with who runs a school, and, uh, which is a very evangelical thing to do there. And, uh, and he is able, the school's not allowed to be open, but he's able to keep the school going, to keep paying all the teachers and keep paying the expenses in doing that. We want to do whatever we can. Both of these contacts we have directly through missionaries we know or workers over there really on the ground. Um, so the distribution isn't big, right? So if you could help 70 families with $1,000, just think if we could raise $10,000, we could help 700 families. Well, it doesn't quite work like that because our guy could only distribute to 70, and that's just all he could do. Um, so for all who are saying, what can I do now? For the folks in India, through these sources, just pray. We're going to do as much as we can every time we get a chance. It's not easy to get money over there. Also, their distribution powers are not, they're not huge organizations. They're just individual workers. So I want to answer that question for those curious and also wanted to thank you for, for loving people you've never seen in such a way. And I guarantee you that the people we work with distribute everything in the name of Jesus and are gospel-preaching people. And so some of these people you've helped you may well see in heaven. All right, let's get into Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. 46 to 52, we got this, the Mark separated into three chunks. This is the unstoppable Son of God, and I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus is unstoppable during these times. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, it works out. Um, the next section, which we're going to start in the fall, we have one more Mark sermon before the summer. But the next section, which we start in the fall, starts with a triumphal entry, and it is the path to the cross, or the path to glory, or the path to victory. Um, but here, we're, we're wrapping up, we're coming to the end of this section, the unstoppable Son of God, and here he's going to be unstoppable again. So, verse 46 of Mark 10, and they, Jesus and his entourage and whoever's following him, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They said, shh, be silent. They probably said, shut up. 
But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. It's, it's a bold blind man who springs up and runs straight forward. You never know what's going to happen. But somehow he got to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight, indicating that he had had it at one time. He wasn't born this way. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, in this section of Mark, the unstoppable son of God, these chapters, Jesus has healed lots of people. And, and in, in one sense, you could say, well, this is another healing story. It shows us, again, the Messiah, the Son of God, can heal, and he heals a blind man, which he's, he's, he can do those kinds of things. Um, isn't there more? What, what can we really take away from this? It, it, aren't I hearing the same story again? Not so fast, my friend. God's word yields treasure after treasure. After being a Christian since I was almost 20, I'm 50-something now, 56, 36 years, the, I never go to a Bible book and go, not going to learn anything here. It is the word of God, and the more you stare at it, and the more you meditate on it, and the more you think on it, the more it gives you. Uh, people often will say, well, I don't believe in Christianity. I've read the Bible before. Normally, when they say I've read the Bible before, it means they've opened it up once and read a paragraph, and that's all. But even if they have read the Bible before, anyone who's read the Bible before and doesn't read it anymore is a fool. Because one time through, unless you're Jesus, is not going to do the trick, right? Throughout our lives, the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no book like it. There's no other book you're going to read that reads you. It gets into your soul. And maybe when you're a 20-year-old, you will see one thing. And when you're 21, another. And when you're 56, another. And the Holy Spirit of God works with it. So with that in mind, well, wait. I actually wrote down this verse on this because I like it. Here's what David said. David wrote a lot about the Word of God, and he had much less than we do. We had all, he had all the books of Moses, perhaps a couple more, but that's all. And here's one of the things he said from Psalm 19. The judgments of the Lord are true. Wouldn't it be nice to know if you read something that it's true? In 2020, I think we have a truth crisis no one trusts anybody to tell them the truth. What is the agenda behind this news you are giving me? Well, not so with the word of God. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are not only true, they're righteous altogether. God isn't just wasting his time going la di da di da saying things you don't need to hear. He's telling you righteous things. Not, Get this, what Jesus is telling you, what God is telling you, same person in the Bible is, they are more desirable than gold. It is better to have the truths of the word of God than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter. It's not just valuable, but it's wonderful. You can have something valuable that's boring. Think Mona Lisa. I know, I'm, a, I'm just a Cretan, I, I just don't get it. The word of God is not only righteous and valuable as gold, it's sweeter than honey as the drippings of the honeycomb. And David lived in a time when they didn't have refined sugar. So imagine coming across gold and honey 
and saying, wow, that's a flavor I don't get often. Well, this is better than that. Moreover, by these words, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. So with that, with that exhortation, encouragement from David, let's, let's go back and read the text again and see what God will show us. We'll take it a little slower. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho, we don't know how long. We can get a vision of he walks in one day and walks out the same day. He could have stayed there several days. We don't really know. So he could go, this could have been just one of the days he was there. He could go out and in. It doesn't matter. But he came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So where is Jericho? Jericho is 18 difficult miles from Jerusalem. Now, if you're a a regular, kind of out of shape, beautiful, Care Bear-shaped kind of guy like me. Um, 17 minutes a mile at decent walking speed, all right? So 18 miles, you're going to get there in one day, easy. But it just so happens that that 18 miles is 3,500 feet up. You go up to Jerusalem, so it's kind of a grueling walk. It's it's also been a dangerous walk to go alone, but it was a very well-taken trip. Why, is it, why am I referencing from Jerusalem? Because in, it, it, eventually, within a, a few days of this moment, Jesus is going to make that trip. And when he gets to Jerusalem and enters the city, that's when he gets on the donkey and has the, the triumphal entry. And that week ends with him being betrayed, arrested, beaten, killed, and rising from the dead. So it's a very important week. So this is really the end. If you're signing up for Jesus' ministry opportunities, right? Um, you say, hey, it's the springtime. I'm ready to get out and join the synagogue gang and do some things with him. Well, if you're signing up today, you've only got about a week left. <laughs> and then it's over. But when he was in uh, Jericho, the, the gospel writers give us... Two names of two new followers. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Jesus knowing that he's fulfilling prophecy by coming in on a donkey and then dying on a cross. Knowing, I mean, if, I, if it were me, I'd be like, I got to really focus. I, I need a little me time. Tell the apostles, go out and tell people nice things about me. But I'm going to just hang out here and chill, maybe talk to God, relax, try not to be too scared and think about myself because I'm going to go die for the sins of the world. Not Jesus. He remains focused on serving others because he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so he picks up two new followers going into his last week. Um, one of them, you know, is Zacchaeus. It doesn't come into this story, but another gospel uh, story. May, may, well, I shouldn't say you know because not everyone knows the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the short little guy. Everyone knows him as being short, right? That's what he's famous for, being short. But uh, he was also a tax collector, and nobody liked tax collectors. Not because no one likes taxes, even though no one likes taxes except tax collectors. <laughs> um, but they didn't like him because a tax collector was a Judas, a Benedict Arnold, a betrayer of his people. He was a Jew who worked for the Romans to collect taxes from his own people, and often very rich, and he was one of those. So when he heard Jesus was coming into Jericho, he, he said, I'm going to go see him. But the crowds wouldn't let him get close. And the Bible doesn't tell us how a crowd keeps the little fella away. Obviously, he can't see above. He could have said, can I get on your shoulders? And No. <laughs> you can see elbows coming right about nose level, 
or maybe like this, you know. <laughs> no one liked Zacchaeus. No one was going to let him see Jesus. So he says, but Zacchaeus is pretty used to not being liked, and he gets things done. So he runs up ahead, climbs up a tree. Jesus and the whole crowd is walking, and they don't even notice him. And Jesus looks up and sees him and says, hey, buddy, come down from that tree. And he comes down, and he goes, I'm going to your house for lunch. Jesus invites himself to lunch. Now, I always want to be like Jesus, so expect some of you are going to get me sending myself an RSVP to your house for a very nice event soon. I don't know what the event is because I haven't chosen it. Just assume you invited me. Just trying to be like Jesus. So he goes to his house for lunch, and, and Zacchaeus really is changed by the love of God can't believe he loves them, and he says, that's it, I'm not going to be a bad person anymore. So they got this beautiful story. That's one of the followers, but the other one is this guy Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, whose father was Timaeus, the Bible says. This is just a language issue. You wouldn't have to tell a Jew his father was Timaeus because the, the, the prefix bar means son of, right? You could say ben or bar, right? And, and they, they both mean son. So if you have the word Timaeus and you have bar, everyone knows it's the son of Timaeus. So Mark goes ahead and tells us. Maybe he thinks we're all a bunch of Gentiles and we don't know. So there you go. He's the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. And, and so bar Timaeus would be their break. We change it and now he's just Bart, right? Bart. Now here's something interesting about Bart, Timaeus. Um, I, I couldn't find anyone in the, in the Gospel of Mark who had been healed by Jesus whose name we're told. No one, not even Peter's mother, just said he, or mother-in-law, just said he healed Peter's mother-in-law. What's her name? Peter said, you don't need to know. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know any of their names. Person came down through the roof, we don't know their name. All the people who came, we don't know their name. But for some reason, this brand new disciple coming in at the very end, we know his name. It's Bart. <laughs> in verse 47, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. Now Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Same as Joshua, there's all kinds of arguments about the name, but don't get bogged down. It wasn't that uncommon. It means Jesus, it means God saves. Uh, but he says, this isn't just any Yeshua, this is Yeshua of Nazareth. And somehow Bart knew him. Now this wouldn't be a shock. Jesus had been down this neck of the woods before. He'd been ministering for three weeks. Jesus' fame was all over Israel. But when he heard, that's him, he began to cry out. And what did he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He began to cry out, meaning... And, and there seemed to be a continual crying out. Bartimaeus would not shut up, right? From his beggar position, um, sitting there, apparently, he just kept saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Bart Bartimaeus not only seemed to know who he was, he called him by a name, Jesus, and a title. What was the title? Son of David. Son of David. Now, Jesus in the Gospels is called by many titles, right? Some he gives himself, some others give him. He is called the prophet by the Samaritan woman. He's called the Christ. He's called the Messiah, the anointed one, which all three are the same. Um, Christ would be the Greek for anointed one, Messiah, Mashiach. He's called the Son of God, 
He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the door into heaven. He's called the Good Shepherd. He's called the Bread of Heaven. He's called the Way. He's called the Truth. He's called the Life and more, I'm sure. But none of those is chosen by Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus doesn't even say, hey, Jesus, healer guy. Right? Jesus, healer guy. <laughs> Jesus, healer dude. I don't know. He has a, a title, and, and the title is somewhat unique in Mark's gospel. How unique, you ask? Thank you for asking. Bartimaeus is the only named person to use it. He's the only one who we know used this title by name. And up till now, the only one. Now, if we look at Luke's gospel, we know there's another person who has a name who used, who set, called Jesus son of David. You know who it is? Don't worry, I'll tell you. Gabriel. Gabriel the angel came down from heaven. Says, hey, Mary, how you doing? Good? Guess what? Pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What? And that started the whole thing. He called him son of David. But besides that, in Mark's, we got, we got Bart. Bart the blind beggar. What does son of David signify? Well, it's an Old Testament reference to a promise that God would give a man named David a throne that would always have his son sitting in the chair, if you will. God had promised David. You remember David, the giant slayer kid, right? David and Goliath. He also was a king of Israel for a long time. And God promised him an eternal throne. So he, he, he's the second king of Israel and the greatest king of Israel. And he, God says to him, look, you're always going to have a throne. And in one, you can see this in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where he says, in your house, by the way, in the Bible, most always when you see house, it means family, okay, not your building. Your house and your kingdom, so your family and your rule. So you, David, your family, your rule, shall be what? Shall be and sure forever. It's going to exist and it's going to be sure. Won't be rocked how long? Oh, forever. Before me, your throne, in case you didn't get it the first time, shall be established how long? Forever. So when David got that promise, and, and that would have been written like a thousand years uh, Moses, yeah, like a thousand years before Bartimaeus was born, right? So, so when, when, when that prophecy came, David's view would have been what? It's, it's natural throughout human history for kings to want to maintain their king, kingship for as long as they possibly can. And then they expect to have a, a son to succeed them, right? And take their place, succeed them, succeed them, come after them, whichever is the right word, I don't know, so we'll go with, to come after them and sit there. And, 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 and you know, you know, Henry VIII cut off all the wives, or, you know, got rid of his wives because they wouldn't produce a son. Maybe if you stop killing them, they could do better, but it's a lot of pressure on a woman. I mean, if, if it were me, we'd have a switched at birth moment, I don't know. It's like, it's a girl, I want someone else's kid, quick. But in any case, they want a son. Why? Because they want their son to reign. And then they want their son to reign. Why? I don't know. It's what human beings are like. No one even asks why. It's just natural. 
right? Why does anyone ever ask why? We don't know. It's just normal. Dude who's king wants his kid to be a king, and he wants his kid to be a king, and they never want their kingdom to end. And so here's David getting a promise from God that that's going to be him. What was in his mind? <laughs> did, he, did he know this was a prophecy of a, of a Messiah? He might have, but he might not have. He might not have. Um, but here's the problem. Um, about... 400 years later, Israel would cease to be ruled by kings because the Babylonians would come and eat their lunch and everything else they had. So they, and so from about 590 or around there, B.C., before Christ, Israel hasn't had a king till today, 2020. They certainly didn't have a king continuously on the throne that was a son of David. If you read the books of Chronicles and Kings, you'll see the sons of David that did succeed him come after him, in case I'm not using the right word. But it didn't seem to work out that well. David died. And then after David died, God sent prophets to Israel because Israel was blowing it. So a couple hundred years later, he sends a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah says this to Israel. Listen. A day will come, he's talking about an end time, the very end, and this is good news for Israel. He says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Whenever you hear my holy mountain in the Old Testament, it's referring to Jerusalem and especially the Temple Mount. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or as a sign for all peoples, root of Jesse, what's he talking about? Jesse is David's father. And, and, and there's at least three prophets, I'm going to show all three of them a little bit to you right now, who, who say, who use a picture of a growing branch, right? Um, out of the family tree of Jesse. So a root of Jesse would be something that springs from the family of Jesse, which is David's family. This is talking about the Messiah. He's going to be one of David's kids. And it says, in that day, a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a sign. So all peoples or all nations to see. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this is a, a prophecy of a descendant of David coming along and lifting up Israel the, the, the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth. You, my friends, have inherited a lot of that. In 2020, the knowledge of the Lord has washed over the nations over and over. We still haven't got to the point where there's no war and all peace and all the good stuff. But it's coming. Ezekiel, about a century after that, for those of you keeping score, yeah, this would probably be about 550 B.C., um, Five. Yeah, I'm around there, I don't know. He said, he prophesied this. God said, I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be prey. People will not come and push my people around and I will judge between sheep and sheep. He means people. <laughs> and I will set up over them one shepherd, one shepherd. We don't need us any more than that. My servant, David. Now David's dead, Right? He is referring to this promise. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. That is a prophecy of one of David's descendants. 
And finally, I'm going to share with you tonight, you can look at these prophets and see even more, but another summary text would be Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Ezekiel, and so they were the same time, and he prophesied this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So you get the vision of David being a tree, and here comes a branch out of the family tree. And he shall reign as king, and he shall deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now remember, this is, actually Jeremiah wrote as Israel fell, and Ezekiel wrote after Israel fell. So there are no kings at that time. (laughs) So in his day, Judah will be saved. Judah is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So there's another promise. What does all this tell us? It tells us that the son of David equals king of Israel. It tells us son of David, and, and Bart the blind beggar used the title, and no one else in Mark used the title. No one else in the Gospels used the title that we can name except for Gabriel, the angel. How did he know? <laughs> how did Bart, Bartholomew, no, not Bartholomew, Bart, Bartimaeus, how did, let's just call him Bart. How did Bart know? He was, <laughs> this is amazing. Well, was he there when the angel Gabriel met Mary? Maybe, maybe that's why he snuck into Mary's house and for his punishment he got blinded (laughs) probably not probably not what did Gabriel say to Mary let's look at that in Luke 1 32 and 33 she just told her hey blessed one guess what you're pregnant (laughs) you know it's hard to be a young woman in a moment like that (laughs) she's taking all this in and then he tells her about her son Um, he will be great He will be called Son of the Most High. Okay, he's Son of God. That's impressive. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Here's that, remember that promise God made to David? Your throne will, you'll have a king and it'll be eternal. It's hard to keep an eternal country. It's hard to keep an eternal throne. Unless we're talking about God and his son and the kingdom of God. So, so... So, so this is why when you read Luke, it begins with a genealogy. That's why when you read Matthew, it begins with a genealogy. They want to show you that Jesus is the grandson of David through his mother Mary and through his surrogate father Joseph. That he is David's rightful heir. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. How long will his kingdom last? No end. So Gabriel told Mary... And that's really the last we hear about it until now in any of the Gospels. This is the last we hear about it until the blind guy says, son of David. So what are we seeing when we see blind Bart, the beggar, sitting there going, son of David, have mercy on me. If you're there, you might make this mistake of saying, we're just seeing an average poor beggar. Beggars can't make money. And back in those days, they had a crazy belief that everyone should try to make money and provide for themselves. Insane, I know. But <laughs> it's hard to get a, a good job if you can't see anything. So um, he, he, um, he begged. 
And, and, and you might say, well, there's a beggar. That's pretty much lowest on the totem pole socially. And uh, he's calling out to a rabbi of great fame who's been rejected by the leaders. So he's a little bit of a, I don't know what you call that, off the reservation rabbi. But if you could see it through spiritual eyes, you'd realize what you had there was a child of Abraham and a citizen of the kingdom of Israel calling out to its only true king, saying, King, can I have an audience with you? That's what it is. I'm not that important, but I'm loud. And king, all I ask is an audience with you. Well, even if he does listen, what kind of king can heal blind eyes? Verse 48, so many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He was bugging them. He was bugging them. Right? This is why you, people shouldn't sing at the table, okay? We're, we're trying to talk here, okay? Don't sing at the table. Um, you're bugging us. Um, it's not that your singing isn't nice, but we can't talk. My mom wouldn't let us sing at the table. I have a beautiful voice. So he wouldn't shut up. Look, they rebuked him, it says, but he cried out all the more. He's like, this is my shot. How often does a blind guy get Jesus walking by? <laughs> Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Think about the ears of our Savior and Lord. He is hearing someone call him something that as far as we know, as far as what's written in the Gospels, no one calls him. Son of David. <laughs> and he goes, get that guy. And so they run and get him. They say, okay, we just wanted you to shut up, but apparently you're all right. Get up. He's calling you. I love verse 50. It's, it's a detail that only comes from someone seeing it. It doesn't need to be in there, but it shows some enthusiasm, doesn't it? He, he throws his cloak off. <laughs> like maybe he was cold, and he's like, I ain't cold now. Get this thing off, and he springs up. He's ready to roll. And uh, he can't see, which is, I don't want, anyway, he goes, <laughs> someone must have grabbed his hand, I'm taking it. And Jesus said to him, what is it you want? It wasn't that long ago that Jesus asked James and John. They said, we want you to do something for us. What is it you want? He said to them, those very important apostles. And if you remember right, because that was last week, Jesus told them, no, you can't have what you want. Now here's this beggar, Bart the beggar. And we don't know that anyone knows his name right now unless he has a name tag. Could have a name tag, but he can't read it. Could be the wrong one. Could be upside down. <laughs> and the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I used to see, I can't see. You know, uh, Ray Charles uh, was not blind from birth. I, I've never been blind, don't want to be, but those people who are blind, there's two ways. You could have seen once, or he could have been blind from birth. I don't know which is worse, but there's something horrible about knowing how beautiful colors are and then they go away. He's like, I want my sight back. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. So the king, the citizen said, I need an audience with the king. What would you like? I would like my sight. This is the sort of king. You ever see movies where kings are sitting there, they bring in all the peasants with their complaints and they're like, give it to him, give it to him. Off with his head, no, or whatever. This guy comes to the king, and he goes, I want my sight. You got it. He's a very merciful king. 
And then he says, go your way, which means what? You're free to choose your path now. You can go anywhere you want now. And immediately, the Bible says, he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. He's like, well, now that I can see, I'll let you know that I'm not stupid. <laughs> You're, I just said you were the son of David. You just healed me. You seem like the greatest guy I know. I'm following you. Jesus said, go where you want. He said, I, this is where I want to go. And he followed him. Well, where was Jesus going? He was going up that hill to Jerusalem. And what would happen when he got there? He gets on the donkey. He arranges for a donkey. He gets on the donkey. He kind of rides in humbly. And people are so excited in that moment. They think this must be Messiah. And they start waving palm branches. Throwing their cloaks in the road. Much to the disdain of the powerful and important Jews of Jerusalem, all the rabble Jews are celebrating him. Somebody starts thinking about what the Psalms say, right, about a, a king. And someone starts saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then you know what they said? Son of David. Now in the gospel, someone else is saying it. We don't even know who, except we know the children were saying it. Remember that? Son of David, son of David, Hosanna is here. They were ushering in the king. Now, if you saw it with earthly eyes, you'd say there's a bunch of rabble saying stuff that's not true about some outlandish dude who makes himself out as a prophet. But if you saw what was really happening, you'd see that God had appointed this day when the king, who he had promised to come as a son of David, to be on the eternal throne was coming in. And though the royalty was gonna reject him, he would not be without citizens calling out, you are the king. Even so much so that by the time he got to the temple, there were very angry Pharisees saying, you need to tell all these people to shut up, especially the kids. They're like a bunch of minor birds. They heard you guys say this, and they're like, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, son of David. Tell them to shut up, you're not that. And Jesus looked at him and said, I could tell them to shut up, but if they don't scream it out, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because this was prophesied that the king would come in, riding in, and he's going to be declared. And there's no reason to think Bart wasn't in the middle of it. Cheerleader number one. For all we know, he got the kids going. Son of David. And when, when the Pharisees said, tell them to shut up, Jesus said, No. I'm not telling them that. They're actually saying the truth. Good point, by the way. A lot of you are worried about what to do in this day and age. With love, tell the truth. Let's get back to the sermon. Why, is, why do you think Bartimaeus' name is mentioned? Of all the people Jesus healed. People, Jesus chatted with a lot of people. We don't know their names. He spent all of chapter 4 of John with a Samaritan woman. What's her name? Samaritan woman. <laughs> that's not a, that, That's all she gets. I think her name was Jenny, but I don't know. Well, I don't know either why Bart's name was recorded. 
But it seems like I think I could guess with 95 or to 98 or maybe 99.9% certainty. He followed the disciples that way and became one of them and they knew his name. I don't know what happened to all the other people he healed, but Bart stuck around. So much so that the gospel writer knew not only his name, but his dad's name, which happens to be in his name. (laughs) So he probably knew his dad too. It's, It's a beautiful story. Last week on the team, he gets to meet all the guys and become one of the gang. Okay, I just have two final observations. Isn't the Bible good? Am I alone here? Isn't it good? Okay, one. Before his final week on earth, Jesus saves a rich man and a beggar. In a world, sounds like the beginning of a movie, in a world, (laughs) in a world that wants to pit one group against another all the time, we are to love everyone based on their humanity and receive everyone based on their faith. You love everybody. You love your friends. You love your family. You love your church. You love fellow Christians. And then you even love your enemies. So you love everybody, but you receive as unified with you those who believe in Christ. Jesus does not separate his followers by their skin color. Jesus does not separate his followers into male and female. He, does not, he knows their skin color. He made it. He knows if they're men and women, even in this modern day, if they don't seem to know themselves. He knows if they're Jews or if they're Greeks. He knows if they're short. He knows if they're tall. He knows if they're old. He knows if they're young. He knows what country they come from. He knows if they're Democrats. He knows if they're Republicans. He knows if they're communists. He knows. But he doesn't separate any of them from each other based on any of that. He does separate, but he does it in a much simpler way. There's only two groups for him, those who receive him and those who reject him. So here you got a hated rich guy and a loudmouthed, I mean, beggar would be what? on the socioeconomic scale. Is there much lower? Yeah, dead beggar. Dead beggar has less than beggar. But besides that, that's as low as you get. And then you got one of the richest Jews and uh, Jesus says, you're in my gang, you're in my gang. Christians, I know this is strange times. Politics has got everybody messed up. And it's easy to hate folks because they're not in your group. And I'm not talking skin color. I, I don't think there's that. I don't think, I don't think any of you hate because of skin color. But you probably hate someone because they don't politically stand where you stand. <laughs> well, I'm not saying you hate them, but you, know, you get my point. Christians, these things matter. But in the end, they're stuff of earth. The most important thing is someone's soul. If you were to die today, trust me, your politics would stop being important. What would be important is do you know Jesus? And by the way, since there are only two groups, I want you to know I'm here as a recruiter. So if you're not on the Jesus team, I'm not trying to say, you're in that other group, I don't like you. I'm a recruiter. I'm setting up a recruiting station (laughs) to tell you, 
Who wouldn't want to follow a king like that? He's the king of the world. He's going to be king forever. There will be no other. So if you join up with him, you're on the winning team. You, you don't have to elect him. He's already got this thing in the bag. And he loves you. He lets the least come up and say, hey, can I see you? He lets the hated drop down out of a tree and say, you know, and he goes to their house. And since he died on a cross as the only innocent man ever, he paid for your sins. So your sins and all those stupid things you feel bad about are forgiven. So I'm recruiting you. Quit the team you're on and come to Team Jesus. The last thing I want to observe here is kind of strange. I can almost guarantee I've never heard this in a sermon, never preached it in a sermon, and never heard anyone else preach it. But I think we got to think about this. We must acquaint ourselves with a very un-American concept. We have a king. I love America. I, I did, took civics back when they still taught civics. I understand the Declaration of Independence, memorized the preamble of the Constitution, and there was once I passed a test saying all the things in the Bill of Rights, I could still probably pick them out if you told me them. I'd tell you which ones are. We don't do kings. <laughs> That's not our thing. Kings are dangerous people. No, we actually say the law is our king. That's what... For, now, this is civics for some of you. Civics, <laughs> I'm not insulting any of your teachers, any of your schools, especially if you're homeschooled, for goodness sake. But in case you don't know, let me just tell you. We're in a form of government that the ancients called a republic, meaning the law is our king, all right? So that means everybody is under the law versus the king is the law, which is the way those doggone British used to do. King, as I say it's true, it's true, because I'm the king. No, no, no. We say the law is the king. And then we say there's a God above that who, who kind of set out not all the details of the law, but enough to know we ought not kill one another. We're allowed to have private property. Yep, it's in there. <laughs> and, and, and people should be protected from people who want to take those things away from you. It's a pretty simple idea. We, you say, well, aren't we a democracy? No, we're not. We are represented in our republic democratically. We elect people and they go and they make sure the laws are right and make sure everything is administered so we're all safe and free. And it's a great idea, very hard to execute, especially for over 200 years, and stay pure. <laughs> but one thing we don't want is a king. Now here's something that goes the other way. <laughs> By the way, well, I won't go there. I was about to get into a history lesson because I love history, but let's stay on course. God's kingdom, what's his form of government? The kingdom you join when you become a Christian forever. It's a monarchy. It's a king, monarch. Not a butterfly, a king. Mon, one, arc, ruler. You know, anarchist, no ruler, Right? oligarchy, several, a small group of people rule you. It's kind of like the Supreme Court has become an oligarchy. Monarch, one ruler, and he's the king. So that means you, American, and if you're trained like me, American, to resist the idea of a king, need to change my thinking because I have a king. And a monarchy is not a democracy. 
You get zero votes in a monarchy. Zero. Does it, my opinion matter? Only if the king wants it to matter. That's it? That's it. <laughs> it's not a republic. Well, doesn't the king have to obey the laws? Nope. King does what king wants. You obey king. It's definitely not collectivism, <laughs> which would be socialism or communism or any of those foolish ideas. It's not anarchy. Are you ready for a monarchy? You're in it. Not in the United States of America, but you're in it. When you, you have dual citizenship. In America and in the kingdom of God. America won't last forever. The kingdom of God will. So the monarchy is your number one government. Now here's the good news. The human heart is made to want a king. Why are there always kings? Why are there always chiefs? You can call your king a chief if you want. Right? Except it's politically incorrect now, so I don't know. <laughs> Kansas City, important guys. <laughs> why, why does people, humans want a king? And I know this is going to be, this is not going to be politically correct. A king is a male figurehead. That's the way it goes. Humans want a king. Men and women want kings. It's in you. You can suppress it. You can push it out of the way. But you want a king. You go, I don't want a king. I don't want one who rules me. No. The impulse to call someone a hero. You got heroes, don't you? Don't you? You won't get a rally with 800,000 signing up in Tulsa if there wasn't a human impulse to want a king. We need a man who's going to lead us. We want to idolize someone. We want a face on a t-shirt. We want the greatest athlete poster and wear their jersey. We want a king. It's in us to adore a man as a king and then to trust him fully. I don't want a democracy. I don't want to decide. I just want you to be perfect. Handle it. It's what? It's much simpler. You want someone to worship. Why do you think you're so impressed by people who are so much better at than you? If you play the piano, you're like, oh, I love to play the piano. Then you see someone who is a virtuoso and you go, I love that person. Why? They make you look like you stink. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I do. You want to exalt someone. It's in you. You, yeah, I was a hero in football. If I hadn't blown out my knee, I would have been in the pros. Who's your favorite football player? So-and-so. He's great. I love watching him. You're not jealous? No. Why? He just proves you stink. <laughs> He's great. You stink. You want to exalt him. You want your parents to be perfect because you want to hold them up. Oh, and all these people disappoint you. Every one of them. Some way. If you're mature enough, you realize eventually, eh, they're like me. I can still hold them up a little bit. <laughs> but it's in us to want to worship a man. I think the way the Antichrist works that in the end is he pulls that impulse to himself. Americans don't have a king, and that's good, because one thing we learned is human kings stink. And they can be awesome, but then they die and someone else comes. <laughs> and then it's a mess. You can't trust a king, doggone it. 
except in movies and books. Arthur seemed like a good king. He's dead, but he wasn't real. Two problems, dead and not real. People want to watch Game of Thrones because they're perverted and like porn. I'm just going to throw that out. Christians, you should not be watching a bunch of porn on television. But that's not why they watch it. They watch it because they are fascinated by kings and queens. We want to see who's in charge. My friends, Jesus is your king. Do you relate to him as king? Well, I accepted Jesus as my personal savior. Well, what is a personal savior? He's never a personal savior in the Bible. I'm not saying he's not your personal savior. He functions like that, but he's, that title isn't even in there. Savior is. Personal, I guess it's an adjective that helps you know what savior is. Let me say it this way. <laughs> you have a king if you're a Christian. And you are a subject Okay, you're a subject. In other words, it's time to cultivate a, lo a, a love for being ruled. Kings rule absolutely. Absolutely! Do I get a choice? No. Do I get a say? No. Can I talk to him? If he wants you to. Fortunately, he's a good king. And he says... If, since you come through me, come boldly before the throne, I'll listen to you. He hears your prayers. He's a good king. He doesn't have to do that, but he does that. Kings are never to be dishonored. Kings get ticked when you dishonor them. Throughout history, you'll see kings doing crazy things for the smallest offense. Poisoning your wine, chopping off your head, all kinds of lousy things. Drawn and quarter. Kings are to be served without question. You don't say to the king, why do I have to do it? Take off his head. Anyone else want to ask that? Now, Jesus isn't capricious like human kings, but he still is to be served unquestionably, is never to be dishonored. He rules absolutely, and you're his subject. You are his subject. He owns you. You do not own you. Saying, well, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to wear my shorts and I'm going to do this. And the king says, I need you. Well, I was going to go on vacation and wear my shorts and do this. No, you're going to wear what I say. You're going to go where I say because I'm the king. That's the earthly king. It's the same with the heavenly king. Except for he's a much better king. Kings are tied to their people. This is a good thing. We like them because they represent our unity. Kings are our unity. That we, our king is our unity. That's why you want a good king. He represents all of us. He's ours. He's tied to us. I think many people following Jesus in America think this thing is a democracy. That you get a vote. That we can do democracy the way, well, the gay marriage thing is so offensive to people. Why don't we rethink what the Bible says? We, we've all voted. It's okay. Well, really doesn't matter that you voted, sweet though that is. What's the king want? I don't know if we should talk about abortion. I mean, women can be in a bad way and men can be abusive. And, and if they can't be free, how can they be equal? Well, 
let's vote. No. <laughs> I don't think God, when he said forgive people, he meant this. Do you think he should? No, of course you shouldn't have to forgive that. You're still a good Christian. What do you think? No, we voted. Don't have to forgive him. Sorry, no democracy. King says do it. You know, I think we have trouble with being, thinking that you can have freedom without democracy. But democracy doesn't necessarily mean freedom. Because if you get your way, you'll get, you could get bondage. Look in Seattle. <laughs> Look at these miserable people on the streets. When I say miserable, I'm not insulting them. They're miserable. You have the freedom to be on social media. We're reading the news all day. And it makes you feel miserable. You put yourself in bondage. You have the freedom to drink. And you make yourself in bondage. You have the freedom to have sex with whomever you will, and you put yourself in bondage. You have the freedom to handle money the way you want, and you become a greedy little sucker, and you put yourself in bondage. Who says democracy and freedom go together? Following Jesus gives you freedom within subjection. Does that make any sense to you? Maybe not on earth, but it's the way it is. You're completely a subject of a man, Jesus, who's also God. You're his subject. You bow the knee and say, what do you want? <laughs> Your whim, my command. Not, well, I prayed for you and you didn't do it, so now I hate you. That would be my whim, your command. No, your whim, my, no, well, you know what I'm saying. I'm all mixed up. Well, what about my needs? Those are his concern. What if he doesn't care? Here's the good news. He's a really good king. He takes the beggar. says, what do you want? I want to see. I'm good with that. Why wouldn't I let you see? I'm on your side. You're an awesome king. I know. So how are you to represent him on this earth? Do you represent him as if he's royal? As if he's dignified? as if he's important, as if he's always right, as if he's respected, worshiped. When he's talked about, do you defend him? If we are subject of his kingdom, you might ask, how do we behave as citizens of the USA? Good news. Our king has put us here and he says, listen, submit to their laws because I I am letting them, I lent the United States of America some authority, submit to what they say. Well, what if they tell me to do something you say don't do? Oh, then disobey them because it's a higher king. That's easy. What about you? I guess I'm inviting you, brother and sister in Christ, to rearrange for, not just tonight as an exercise, but forever, the way you view your relationship to God. Aren't I a child of God? Yes. But that doesn't take away the fact that he's your king. He is your king. I mean, you're completely subject to him. And you shouldn't do anything that he doesn't want you to do, and you should do everything he wants you to do. And if you say, well, what about me? You stop saying that. He's got your back. He's a really good king. But I really want to ask the minority people here, <laughs> not skin color minority, most people hear my voice already say, yeah, I think you're right. I got to think about this. He's my king. But some of you, 
And then, by the way, if you're constantly disobeying your king in a sin, you might want to repent, right? He's your king. But some of you are saying, I'm just watching. I got dragged here by a relative. Uh, I'm watching on, on TV. I don't even know. What are you saying to me? What I'm saying to you is, wouldn't you like to become a citizen of God? Because if you do not become a citizen of God, you remain an enemy of Jesus Christ. And though he may look as safe and friendly as a stinking Care Bear when you see him portrayed in the movies, he's a dangerous king who will crush and destroy all his enemies at the end of time. Now, you can be his enemy and live in your own sin. He made you. He gave you everything you have. He gave you your life. He gave you your home. He gave you freedom. He gave you this beautiful world. And you think you can do anything you want and you abuse all the gifts he gave you. Trust me, you don't want to see the king on the last day. So, I have a better plan. What if you become a citizen? <laughs> how do I do it? The blind dude told you how. Son of David. Have mercy on me. Jesus never says no to a sincere, have mercy on me, a sinner. 